Today's reading is Sweet Darkness by David White. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure that you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. There are many places the story of Unitarian Universalism can take us, from England to New England, from heresy trials in Geneva, Switzerland, to heresy trials in Poland, the rolling hills of Transylvania, and the craggy Kalsi Hills in the far northern Himalayan region of India. The story of this religious tradition is indeed far and wide. And so it should come as no surprise that our story today begins in Finland. As of 2020, a small Unitarian fellowship meets every month in Helsinki. But our story begins when the varieties of Lutheranism were still dominant in Finland. The year is 1879, and we find ourselves in the town of Kuopio, a sub-Arctic city surrounded by the ever-beautiful Lake Kalavesi, much of the city built on little islands. A child is born, as these stories usually go, a girl, Milma Tikkanen. Her upbringing was typical to any socially conscious Finn in the late, 18, in the late 1800s. She was raised to be an activist, to care about politics, to be hospitable and charitable to strangers, immigrants, and any in need. And during her childhood, Finland saw, both, saw itself both resisting Swedish influence and Russian oligarchy. She grew up as Finns began to assert themselves once more, choosing to learn, write, and speak in their own language instead of Russian or Swedish. They reclaimed their rituals, their customs, and their identity. With such an upbringing, Milma was an outspoken teenager, giving her first public speech in favor of the Finnish temperance movement, which was eventually successful in 1919, but repealed in 1932 because, surprise, violence increased. Upon graduating high school, Milma found herself in the United States, as was the fashion of the time for Scandinavian young adults. She entered into domestic service in Massachusetts, and became an official emissary of all things Finland. She would share stories, she would dance, she would share recipes, anything else that she loved about her culture. But domestic service was not her calling. She felt pulled to be a Christian missionary in China, and so she enrolled at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Unlike many women of her time, she did not accept that she should merely do the correspondence course with Moody Bible Institute and instead she went there. 
Now, if you know anything about the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, it is known for just being a little fundamentalist, then and now. And she bristled at their insistence on orthodoxy. You see, when you grow up under the pressure of imperialism and oligarchy only to break free, you can imagine that any imperialism of the mind is also not something you would welcome. Milma left seminary, but did become a missionary to finish quarry workers in New Hampshire. She quickly became beloved. The people she served saw no need for a church or had no connection, and this is in the late 1800s, but she felt that wherever people gathered, the heart of church was possible. Take note of that, the heart of church. And while she would bring in Christianity when she officiated marriages or funerals, she instead met people where they were. She interpreted for the Finnish speakers, taught Finnish to the children as well as Finnish customs, and if called upon to hold religious services, she offered them when it would be truly a moment of Sabbath and rest for the quarry workers. It wasn't on Sunday morning. So beloved was Milma that the underpaid workers gathered funds together and sent her away to finish her seminary studies at a less fundamentalist seminary, the lay college of the ministry, Congregationalist Institution. Now, it might seem weird that they loved her so much that they sent her away. But when you love someone, sometimes that love means sending them on their way into what is most life-giving for them. It was there that she met her future husband, Risto Lapala. They married and hit the road, preaching at any church that needed them, tending to finish communities, and on top of it all, they were questioning the tenets of their congregationalist faith. Soon enough, they both ended up in the Masabi Ridge area of Minnesota, another mining community with a large Finnish population. It was there that the story all comes together for Milma. They continued to preach their questions about faith, only to be brought up on heresy charges by the Congregationalist Church. The results of these charges are unclear to me and unclear to history, but what is clear is that they bid farewell to Congregationalism and became Unitarians. As they continued to minister to mine workers in the town of Virginia, Minnesota, a church was gathered and dedicated in 1912. Milma and Risto used their living rooms for Sunday school, and every service and event was held in Finnish. They continued to preach what, they, what was deemed heresy comfortably with the American Unitarian Association, but still to the disapproval of the owners of the mines. Why was this a problem, you might wonder, for the mine owners? When your religion teaches you to be critical and to demand worth and dignity as a Finnish mine worker in the early 1900s, eventually that means demanding to be paid a living wage and the right to unionize. The congregation in Virginia flourished and Milma planted a second one just up the road in Alongo. She became known as what we call a burying minister, a minister that would marry, bury, or meet with anyone, no matter what their background was. She was called to serve all those who were not welcome elsewhere. What this also means is that the congregations her and her husband served were full of atheists, agnostics, ex-Lutherans, and socialists, and all the other outcasts of Minnesota. 
and this is in the late 1800s and early 1900s here. There was an island of misfit toys not waiting for a new home, but finding home right where they were under the ministry of Milma and her husband, Risto. In 1923, her husband died unexpectedly and suddenly. And there Milma was, a single mother of four and now a minister of not one, but two congregations. And her belovedness continued. One congregation member noted that she was so charming and forceful a speaker, she could convince the devil himself to join the church, though they didn't believe in the devil in the church. (laughs) But her ministry was not just in preaching the truth as she saw it. Milma Lapala believed in church beyond Sunday morning. She believed wholeheartedly in the church potluck, sledding down hills with the children, picnics, Finnish festivals, and cultural exchanges. She believed the church was to meet the people where they were and to celebrate that. Despite all of this, the American Unitarian Association replaced her unceremoniously in the 1940s with an English-speaking minister in Virginia, Minnesota. And the Finnish population of the congregation swiftly dwindled. To this day, the bizarre reasoning of the AUA is unclear to all who study this history. Milma now found herself serving one congregation, the mission church that she helped found in Alango. She served there until her death in 1950. To this day, the church in Virginia, Minnesota still exists and has reclaimed the story of Milma Lapala. And the last record of the church in Alango was in 1993. It is assumed they sold their property and dissolved the congregation. Why tell this story? Why remind us of yet another missed opportunity for our tradition? Here we see the American Unitarian Association alienating a unique community of Finnish-speaking Unitarians in Minnesota. Why remind ourselves of this? Because I wholeheartedly believe there's another story being told here as well. A story that far exceeds the mistakes of the suits in Boston. It tells us exactly why a community such as ours is important. Here we find in the early 1900s, 10s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, here we find a church for those without a community, for former Lutherans, for socialists, atheists, doubters, heretics, rebels, union advocates, Finnish immigrants. There they gathered and sang songs of hope, shared potluck after potluck, sledded down wintry Minnesotan hills, found friends for the journey. They told their stories, stories of shared history, and journeyed together as the story continued to unfold. That was church for them, and that is what church can still be today. The story of Milma Lapala and the Finnish Unitarians of Minnesota is a part of our shared history. Whether we are Finnish or not, ex-Lutheran or not, Minnesotan or not, It is a part of the tapestry that is this shining beacon of progressive religion. It is a beacon that says yes to the outcast, yes to the downtrodden, yes to the lost among us. It says yes and celebrates that, despite whatever human mistakes might interrupt it. And this is also a story that is your story. Perhaps it really is your story, finding home here in this community. Or perhaps it was your parents' story, your grandparents' your friends, and your neighbors. 
And this story can transport us beyond the Finnish-speaking communities of iron workers. This story can root us in the coal fields of Appalachia, the rolling hills of the bluegrass, the seven acres we now sit on. Even then, this story can be closer to our hearts than that. Each potluck shared by the church's Milma La Paula stewarded, surely there were stories of hardship, stories of joy, all of the in-between. Life was shared in those moments, and so too here, it can be shared, and it can be that close. We find ourselves passing a hot dish or a kitchen sink pasta salad at a potluck, and there we find stories of our community. We find late bills, illnesses in the family, new grandchildren, beginnings aplenty, beginnings in short supply. We find life and love, and here, right here, right now. Though Virginia, Minnesota is 904 miles from here, and Milma La Paula is 70 years gone, it is as if each gathering of this community is near and dear to that town in Minnesota and the life of Milma La Paula. Not in some supernatural way, but in a way that we are continuing the thread of religious liberalism. In the way that we are all invited to participate in the deep well of history that is Unitarian Universalism a history that is so very human and life-changing and life-affirming. Each gathering of our heretic communities is as if we kindle a council fire and Milma La Paula is but one attendee. Also in attendance, we find the early universalists who gathered heretic churches in Kentucky in the late 1700s. We find Ethelred Brown planting churches dedicated to free thought in Jamaica and the Harlem community of New York. We find the grit of pioneering women who founded communities all throughout the Midwest, despite the protests of the men in Boston and their lack of support. We find our ministers in the 1970s presiding at LGBT union ceremonies before it was even a possibility legally. We find Jim Reed and Viola Liozzo, martyrs to freedom. We find beloved members of this community and every heretic who has ever dared to question and to be proud in the questioning, no matter the consequences. We are in good company at that council fire. And I am proud to be a heretic <laughs> and to serve as a minister of this peculiar faith, a faith that raised me and made me who I am today. But that is not my only identity as a Unitarian Universalist, and neither is it yours. Our identity as a church is also in the deviled eggs and every cup of coffee. Every board meeting, every time the minister straightens or doesn't straighten the sanctuary chairs. <laughs> I knew you'd laugh at that. It's in every lost beloved member or parent or those that are near to us. It's in every song of gladness, song of the bittersweet, song of hope for a new day. There it is. There is the real mission of, our pla of this place. And it is the mission that was written into the very bones of the Reverend Milma La Paula, into my bones and into yours. To know this of ourselves is not to just grant us resilience in our peculiarity as a religion, but to give way to what is possible. Milma La Paula once said this, she wrote, we too will hear wondrous things, these things we can treasure. As the ancient bard Kalevala once sang, Shall I open my box of legends and my chest where lays my treasured? I'll sing so grand a ballad 
that it wondrously shall echo to enhance our evening's pleasure. Celebrate the daylight's beauty. We are called to be bards. Not on a lute or even a ukulele, but you can go wild if you want. But bards that hum and sing out that wondrous echo that is religious liberalism. That encourage us to ask why, to be proud of our heresy, to celebrate our love for the outcast. It is a song of memory and a song of justice. And as David White wrote in our reading earlier, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the worlds except the one to which you belong. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. As we find that which brings us alive, we are called to bring life as well to this place and beyond. And what do we do with this? How do we steward Milma La Paula's story in a way that is life-giving for here and now in 2020? Isn't it enough to say, great, we are the wondrous echo of our history. Well done, Brian. But when we come to hear these stories, as we've heard stories of James Reeb, Viola Liuzzo, Leroy Moten, Joseph Jordan, Ethelred Brown, David Eaton, Fanny Barrier-Williams, and so on and so on and so on. People who are black, white, immigrant, gay, straight, and so on as well. People like you and me who said yes to a religion that questions instead of answers. When we come to know these stories as we know our own, how do we not act? How do we not answer the call to justice and mercy? To mobilize, to say yes to a world where our values are not just a hope, but an ever-growing reality. That is what our history teaches us as Unitarian Universalists. Lives and communities that took hold of the arc of the universe and bent it with all of their might instead of waiting for it to happen on its own. As this congregation begins a good long journey toward figuring out what it means to live our faith with an eighth principle, which calls us to dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions and a journey toward wholeness as one beloved community, part of that work is realizing it is in our very story as Unitarian Universalists, and we will not forget it. But it is also work that begins right here. It begins in the potlucks and the meetings, the work days and the clogged toilets. Nothing is excluded. It begins in taking hold of our history as a tradition and inscribing ourselves into it, not just passively witnessing it. It begins in joining that wondrous echo that is the diversity and fullness of Unitarian Universalism. It begins in waking up to the sounds that are right before us. What wondrous echo will you be a part of? How will you bend the arc of our history? Blessed be. Amen.